So Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to cover quite a lot of ground today. I'm not going to tell you how much, because <laughs> you might run. Uh, but we're going to cover a fair bit of ground in, uh, in Nehemiah today. It's one of those passages of Scripture where I think you will get more from it if we sort of back up and take a, a look at it from a distance rather than going into the fine details, because we could get lost in the detail very easily. Let me read our verse for the series. This happened in the prayer room one morning about three months ago now. I read this verse, thought I'll preach on this for a couple of weeks, and we're still here. I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild. Amos chapter 9, verse 14. Nehemiah then, chapter 8, is where we're headed to start with. <laughs> um, let me read the first dozen or so verses of, of, of Nehemiah 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him were all those guys who I'm not going to name. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, all those guys, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So we finished last week at the end of chapter 6. The walls have been completed according to Nehemiah 6.15. In 52 days, they got the job done in spite of opposition uh, and in spite of all sorts of obstacles, Nehemiah showed wonderful leadership and resilience to get the job done. Nehemiah 7 
contains a list of names of people who had returned to Jerusalem. And it is the same list as Ezra chapter 2. We're not going to preach the list of names today. So he's finished the job. He's joined people like Zerubbabel and Ezra as successful seemingly successful rebuilders of Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah has a much bigger project to engage in. He's finished the walls, but within the walls, there are people. And those people have hearts. And Nehemiah now has to do some work rebuilding and restoring the hearts of the people. This is a more difficult job than rebuilding the walls. And this will stretch Nehemiah to his very limit. A lot more than building the walls stretched him and a lot more than the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah stretched him last week. So where should he begin? He begins with this request to Ezra to come and the people are gathered together in the square and they have this great phrase which which all people should say to, to Christian leaders on a regular basis, bring out the book. All right, the book. For Ezra, for Nehemiah, for those people, it was the book of the law, it was the scroll, it was the writings of Moses. For us, the book is a bit bigger, but there's a hunger among the people for truth. A hunger for truth. I think uh, that hunger is very apparent in society, uh, people of all ages. I think we miss uh, or we sort of underestimate people and we think that they want to have some sort of church gathering or service provided that's light on truth that's got lots of other things that are nice and enjoyable and fun but will go light on truth because people can't handle it and they don't want it i think that's wrong i think people want truth i think we're living in a society even people who who aren't following jesus they're living in a society that is so unstable so changeable so fickle people want truth all right and we have a book full of it and The message that comes to Ezra is, all right, Ezra, bring out the book. And when he brings out the book and and reads, I want you to see who's there in verse 2. Men, women, and all who were able to understand. That's children as well. Now, there might not have been any sort of three-month-old infants there, but everyone who was able to understand and listen was there. Nobody was excluded. This was not just an event, only the men can come. The men were there, the women were there, and the children were there as well. And what we've got is, if you think my messages are long, look at uh, Nehemiah 8.3. Ezra starts reading at daybreak. Now, I didn't have time to figure out exactly what time of year this was, but let's say that's about 6 a.m. You know, be conservative about it. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. (laughs) Okay, you up for that? I'm not even going to look at you to get your response. And all the people listened attentively. That literally says they, they inclined or they lent their ear. Sort of leaned in with their ear. You know, your good ear and your bad ear and all that. They were leaning over with their ear directed towards Ezra so they could hear the word of the Lord. They were very, very focused. And we've got the first pulpit in the Bible. Ezra's on a wee wooden platform that somebody has made for him to get up above the people and be able to address them. In verse 7, he's got helps. We've had the, the, the sort of the first pulpit. We've got what's going on here is like what's called the first expository sermon, which basically means that somebody takes a passage of the Word of God and just works through it. It's a lot of what we do here. It's good, 
because it forces you to deal with chapters in the Bible that you wouldn't normally deal with, like some that we're going to deal with this morning. And uh, Ezra's not on his own. He's got the Levites with him, all of these fellows here, and they instruct the people. So you've got this picture where Ezra is reading the law, but then we're reading between the lines here. It does look like the people then are separating into smaller groups with other Levites to help explain the law to them. So we might also have here not only the first pulpit and the first expository sermon, but we might have the first evidence of small groups in the Bible. Small groups can be a good thing if they have structure, if there's a Levite in them. If there's somebody there that's just guiding it and directing it and giving the thing a bit of shape. And that's the way that, that Ezra is, is, has set things up here. And it says in verse 8, they are making the word clear. They're giving the meaning so that the people understood The job of the teacher, the job of these guys is to communicate the word of God and make it clear. Right now, I am reading to you from a book that is two and a half thousand years old. Yes? (laughs) From a part of the world that most of us have never been to and a culture that is utterly, radically different from our everyday culture. It's not easy to understand (laughs) and therefore it is good to have people who make it clear and who give the meaning we need to make the word of God understandable I am thankful so here's just a wee wee rabbit hole I'll not go too far down I am thankful for the King James version of the Bible I'm thankful for it some people have been raised with it and they love it that is absolutely fine it was wonderful in its time and a gift to the human race I would not give it to a 15-year-old if they came to me and said, can I have a Bible? Because it will be more difficult for them to understand, not that it's anything wrong with it, but it will be more difficult for them to understand than a more modern translation. We need to make the word understandable so people can get it. I was struck, I think, last year as I was going through my reading plan and I hit this verse in Matthew 13 from the parable of the sower that you've all heard many times but as Jesus explains it he says to the disciples listen to what the parable of the sower means this is Matthew 13 18 the first type of seed when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart I never spotted that phrase before does not understand it This is the seed sown along the path. You know the sower and he sows the seed and some of it lands on the path and the birds come and they take it away. When Jesus explains it, this is the way he explains it. It's people who have heard the message but haven't understood. And all of a sudden you think the responsibility on the one presenting the message to make it understandable so that it is less easily snatched away by the enemy. If we preach sermons and we do Bible studies and we speak to young people or whatever we do to communicate the word of God, if we do it in a way that just flies over people's heads, then we are not helping them to understand it and we're making it easier for it to be snatched away. And look at the response of the hearts of the people when they hear the word of God. After six hours, they're weeping and you're thinking, mate, if I listened to you preach for six hours, I'd be weeping too. All the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They didn't have a copy of the scroll in the house. We have so many of them, it's unreal. And on all our devices and all of that. They didn't have that. 
So as they're hearing the law read to them, they're suddenly becoming aware of the way they have behaved and the way their ancestors have behaved that led to the exile in the first place. And they're grieved by it. They're responsive to the word of God. They've been attentive to it. And as they've listened to it, they have become upset by it because it has exposed them. That should still happen to you and me. I'm not saying we should be bawling our eyes out every morning as we read the Bible or whenever, but there should still be moments where it just pricks our hearts and we, 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 we hear the Spirit. We hear God just putting his finger on something in our lives and it leads to godly sorrow. I can remember a, a guy coming in here one time and it was the, the first time he came in and he then spoke to me a couple of days later and he said how he had been in on Sunday morning and under the sound of the word, and I hadn't even been hitting a particular issue, but he was deeply, deeply convicted about something that he had then to go and put right. And it cost him money <laughs> to go and put it right. Just in that atmosphere of the presence of God and the truth, the book being brought out, God put his finger on his heart and he had godly sorrow about an issue in his life that he had to go and address. And bless him, he did. And then what we have, so we're, we're Nehemiah chapter 8, we've just done verse 9. What we've got is something that I've called the gospel according to Nehemiah. In case you're not familiar with it, in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, usually those, the long title of those is the gospel according to Matthew. Well, here's the gospel according to Nehemiah. In context, the people have heard the word of God and their sin has been exposed. They suddenly realize they are sinners. They suddenly realize they need to repent. And Nehemiah comes and he says, first of all, do not grieve. You are feeling grief over your sin as a response to God's word. That's okay, but let's stop grieving because I've got good news. <laughs> I've got gospel for you. And the gospel according to Nehemiah is the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love this verse. For a long time I have thought, I don't really know what it means. <laughs> it's one of those classic mug, t-shirt, tea towel, tattoo uh, verses in Christianity. It's just the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. So I've been thinking about it a bit more this week because look at the context again. It's the context of people who have just realized I'm a sinner. I have offended God. I have lived in a way that is contrary to his word. And then the good news comes, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I think one aspect of it, and this is maybe not the only aspect of it, but in context, I think one aspect of how to understand this verse is helped if you realize that the word strength, I'm just going to wreck your favorite verse here. The word strength, the Hebrew word there, everywhere else in the Old Testament, it is not translated strength. It is translated refuge. So all those places in the Psalms where David says, the Lord is my refuge, or the Lord is my strong tower, my place of safety, that's the word he's using, the word that is here translated strength. So you could probably slightly more accurately translate the verse, the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. It is your refuge. And when people have realized they are sinners and that they are deserving of the judgment of God, they need a safe place to run to to seek refuge. 
All right? So it's not just that, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. It is your strong tower, your refuge, your place to run to whenever you realize that you need somewhere to go to for safety. And how is the joy of the Lord then that refuge to a sinner? And I think it's simple as this. God rejoices over us. Why does God forgive us? And this might not be theologically profound. I think God forgives us because he enjoys it. He rejoices over forgiven people. What happens, Jesus says, when, when one person repents, there is rejoicing among the angels. There is joy. God takes great joy in people repenting and coming to him. He's not standing with the blue pipe ready to wallop them. He is overjoyed to welcome them and to embrace them home and to forgive their sin. The joy of the Lord, that aspect of God that joyfully forgives is the place you can run to as your refuge. That is the good news, according to Nehemiah, to these people who have just suddenly realized, here, I'm a sinner, I'm in trouble. Where can I run to? Nehemiah shows you where you can run. And I wonder, just as, a, as an aside, and a thinking about this joy of the Lord that is the refuge for sinners, I thought about Jesus in Hebrews 12, where because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I wonder, is it the, the sheer joy of being off, to able to offer forgiveness to humanity? Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then he says to the people as well, still in verse 10, he says to them, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Have a meal together. <laughs> you know, have a meal together. It's just Jesus again. What did Jesus do for, for, for people? He gave them a meal. He says, here's a meal. There's bread and there's wine. Come together. Have a meal. The joy of the Lord is your refuge. You're forgiven. Now eat together and celebrate. Love it. Now, we're going to zoom out and we're going to speed up. Chapter 9 has a big, long prayer in it, which is like a bit of a history of Israel. And I want you just to see the tone of the prayer. As a response to hearing the word of God, here's how the people pray. They gather together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Just take a moment to give thanks for the fact that we don't do that. The dust on the heads, I can handle a wee bit of fasting now and again, but wearing sackcloth, you know? Like sackcloth is the cloth that sacks are made of. You know the grass sacks or the coffee beans, you know those brownies? Okay, now just imagine for a moment that your underwear is made out of sackcloth and you will very quickly be very aware of your sin, yeah? And uh, we'll move on. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So the response to the word of God is national repentance. Not only their own sin, but the sin of the entire nation. The people come together and they pray and they confess their sins publicly. They spent a quarter of the day hearing the book of the law in verse 3 of chapter 9, and another quarter of the day confessing their sin and worshiping. Just this deep, deep response to hearing the word of God. It didn't go in one ear and out the other. It wasn't just forgotten about. They responded to it. And at the end of chapter 9, in view of all of this, 
We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Here's what they do. It's a bit like school. Anybody started school recently? When you start school, you hear a thing called the code of conduct. You hear it over and over and over again. Okay? And once you've heard it, 40 times, you then get a document. Now, some of you may not have experienced this, but there's a document provided and you have to sign the document to say, I will abide by the code of conduct. So that in future, no one can come and say, I didn't know that it was wrong to put another child in the bin or whatever. All right? You've signed and you've put your name to it and we keep it in a folder and you know the rules. It's a bit like that, because this is what they're doing. They, they're going to come up with a list of things. They're going to put it in writing. These things that they're going to do to recommit themselves to God, and then they're going to sign their names to it. And chapter 10 then has this whole heap of names of the guys that signed the Code of Conduct. All right? Loads of them. So we, we don't, we're not going to do the first 20-odd verses of chapter 10, because it's just the names of all the fellows who said, I'm not going to put anybody in the bin. But I want you to see some of the things that they committed to. And we are going somewhere here. We are going somewhere. Some of the things that they committed to in, in Nehemiah 10. In verse 30, they committed, they said, we're not going to marry non-Israelites. Now, that doesn't mean you can't marry someone from a different country nowadays. But what they were to do is they weren't to marry someone who worshipped a pagan god. Right? And non-Israelites worshipped pagan gods. So like, we're not going to marry them. Signed. I'm not going to do that. Uh, we're going to respect... The Sabbath, signed. We're going to respect the Sabbath, okay. Uh, we're going to cancel debts because every seven years, those who were in debt had to have their debts canceled. That was in the law. So the people got a second chance. So people had made mistakes or fallen into bad uh, debt. And the way to cancel your, or the way to deal with your debt was to just sell yourself into slavery or sell your children into slavery. I would sell the children first and then. <laughs> but the way, they canceled their debts of, of their slaves and said, okay, you can go free. You can get a second chance. So here, we're going to do that. Signed. Um, they were going to respect the temple by paying the temple tax. They were going to respect the temple by bringing wood for the offering. They were going to respect the temple by bringing first fruits for the priests. So all of these things that they say, we're going to do all this. And they sign it. And their names have been recorded for all of history. And at the end, they summarize it at the end of chapter 10 and say, we're not going to neglect the house of God. This temple that Zerubbabel has rebuilt and Nehemiah has put the walls around. And Ezra's teaching us how to live. We're not going to neglect the house of our God. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 give another list of people who are living in Jerusalem. And then chapter 12 closes out with the dedication of the wall. A cool ceremony. Just awesome. Where, where Nehemiah does this class thing. So you've got the walls around the city. Nehemiah gets two choirs. Two sets of musicians and singers and he starts one group and says you go that way and the other group says you go that way and they walk around the walls of the city and they are both groups are praising God must have been absolutely class just to hear this the sound of worship coming from both sides as they encircled the city with praise you know I can imagine one one group shouting you know or singing sing a little louder and the other group shouting in the presence of my enemies sing a little louder and my weapon is a melody and they're just they're coming back and forward as they go around the city and whenever they get around the city and they meet the place where they would meet was at the door of the temple and these two choirs would meet and then file together into the temple for a big shindig to celebrate the wall 
being finished. Great rejoicing in Nehemiah 12, 43. Everybody, women and children, the whole lot. Sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And they all lived happily ever after. Or did they? (laughs) If only it ended there. Most sermon series in Nehemiah end there. Most books that use Nehemiah as a model for Christian leadership end there. Nehemiah does not end there, though. (laughs) It's a bit of a problem. Uh, There's more. Would have been lovely if it ended here. But there's another chapter. Darn. (laughs) There's another chapter. And it is grim reading. And we're going to read it because we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. You really need to get this. We have learned some class stuff from Nehemiah about leadership, about dealing with opposition, about how to lead the people and get the job done. We've learned some class stuff, but we're going to a dark place now. <laughs> Same thing happened with Ezra and Zerubbabel. Both, both of them did a great job, but both of them finished with anticlimax. And we'll review that. This is a sad chapter. Nehemiah goes on a tour of Jerusalem in, in chapter 13. And let's see what he finds. On that day, this is Nehemiah 13. We did start in Nehemiah 8. (laughs) This is Nehemiah 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. So that's a rule from the law of Moses. Ammonites, which are quite small people groups, are not allowed to come into the assembly of God. The reason why was because they hadn't helped the Israelites by bringing food and water. They hired Balaam to curse them. They were just two nasty people groups. And they were not to come into the house of God. No Ammonites and no Moabites. They were not allowed to come in. And in chapter 13, verse 3, when the people heard that, look what they did. They excluded from Israel everyone who was a foreigner. Now hang on, people. You weren't meant to do that. You were meant to exclude two groups who had historically not supported Israel, but somehow you've decided to exclude everyone who is not from Israel. You weren't meant to do that. What are you doing? (laughs) You're heading off course. This is meant to be the city that all nations come to. I have told you two tiny people groups that aren't allowed in, and you've, you've sealed it up, and you're not going to allow anybody in. You're going to become this exclusive group that no one else is, in, is allowed into. You're, you weren't meant to do that. You weren't meant to do that. What's going on? Look at verse 4. Eliashib, the high priest. Now, last week I commended him. Two weeks ago. I commended him. Because he's the first name mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. When you've got this list of all these different people that built the wall, you've got the priest getting his hands dirty and helping to lift rocks and build the wall. And I was saying, Eliashib's a good spot. Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. In the temple there were these rooms. In the Lord's house there are many rooms. And in in the temple there were many rooms for storing food. When the people brought their offerings from the harvest and from the field or whatever for the Levites and the priests, they were put in these storerooms in the temple. And Eliashib was in charge of the storerooms of the temple of the house of God, but he used his privilege for his mate. He was closely associated with someone and provided him with a room. 
So Eliashib is in charge of these rooms that are meant to have the first fruits that the people have brought for the priests and Levites. And he says, I'm going to let my mate stay in one of these rooms. Do you know who his mate was? It was Tobiah. And we're in trouble. Because <laughs> the priest is now mates with Tobiah. And Tobiah is the bad egg from last week who kept sending intimidating letters to Nehemiah and the people to try to derail the building process. What is going on? The priest has let Tobiah into the temple and given him a nice room to stay in. It was probably a financial agreement. Tobiah, you know, Eliashib probably benefited from this financially. But let's remember another thing about Tobiah that might be a random detail that has left your mind. But Tobiah was an Ammonite. (laughs) So back in verse 1, they are reminded that there's to be no Ammonites in the temple. Their response in verse 3 is to not allow anybody to come near the place from any other nation, which is not what they're meant to do. And meanwhile, in the background, the priest has led an Ammonite into the temple to live there. What is going on in Jerusalem? Let's keep going. Nehemiah, it's quite funny in verse 6. There are funny moments in your Bible. Nehemiah says, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. It wasn't me. <laughs> you know, it's very quick. I have an alibi. I went back to see the king, back, you know, the, the Persian king. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. But he chucks Tobiah out. It's class. He throws him out and he throws all his stuff out. Got to love Nehemiah's passion and his zeal. In verse 15, Nehemiah goes on his tour again. And what does he find as he tours around Jerusalem? I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. What? You weren't meant to do that. You wrote a big long list of names who signed up to the code of conduct. And part of the code of conduct was you weren't going to work on the Sabbath. And here you are working on the Sabbath bringing in all of these loads into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. What's going on, people? You're not meant to do that. You said you would honor the Sabbath, and you're not. And then he goes on on his tour, and in in verses 19 to 21, he finds people that in order to try to avoid his restrictions on trading in the city on the Sabbath, they go outside the city on the Sabbath and set up their trading posts beside the wall that Nehemiah built to protect the city. You're meant to honor the walls, folks. You're meant to recognize the work that I've done and you're, you're not meant to be trying to bend the rules in order to sin and offend God. What is going on? In verse 23, he goes on his tour again. And in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. What are you doing? These are the very nations that you're meant to have nothing to do with. You signed up and you said you would honor the law. You said you would not marry people who serve pagan gods. What are you doing? And one particular Muppet who is the son of Jehoiada or Joiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, he's son-in-law to Sanballat. Do you remember Sanballat from last week? We had this Terrible too, Sanballat and Tobiah who were causing all the trouble. Eliashib has allowed Tobiah to come in and live in the temple. And Eliashib's grandson has married Sanballat's daughter. What are you doing? What are you doing? And Nehemiah is just absolutely wrecked by this. Trading on the Sabbath, trading by the walls, crushing grapes and and making wine on the Sabbath... 
you know, excluding everybody and allowing in the people you were told to exclude. What is going on with these people? And Nehemiah's passion and his zeal are commendable, but this is not how to lead. (laughs) Here's how he responds to these people that are marrying women from other nations. I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath. He's lost it. Nehemiah's lost it. In the frustration of all of these people who will not do what they are meant to do and who continually rebel, Nehemiah, his zeal and his passion for God has overspilled, has has caused him to become angry and he has lashed out at his people. He's hitting people (laughs) and tearing out their hair. And suddenly the sermon series and the book about Nehemiah's example as a leader goes really quiet at this point. (laughs) Because we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. But I'm telling you, that's wrong. (laughs) That is not the model for leadership. The passion behind it might be, but the action out of it is not. He's lost it. And I can imagine him repeatedly as he goes around Jerusalem on this tour and he sees all these things. I can imagine him saying over and over again, you said you wouldn't do that, but you're doing it. You said you would change, but you haven't changed. You said you'd honor the temple. You're not honoring it. You said you'd honor the Sabbath. You're not honoring it. You said you'd honor the walls. You're not honoring them. Have you ever felt like that? The frustration of seeing someone's heart And listen to me, because some of you, and this is going to just ring a bell and put a light on, the frustration of of walking with someone, whether it's in leadership or in in a sort of a discipleship role, a mentoring role, or or any any role where, where you can see someone's heart and you can see the problem and what needs to change. But they won't change. (laughs) And it's not that you're it's not that you're wrong, it's not that you're being arrogant. You can just really clearly see this is the issue here. But the person refuses to change and you get really frustrated. That's what happened to Nehemiah. And he became a bully. He became a controlling, manipulative leader who was attacking his own people when they would not affect the change that he wanted them to affect. And I think, have you ever felt like that? Just really frustrated. Just walking with somebody, and you can you can just, it's just in bright lights all around them. This is your problem, but they will not address it. And and you know what? If if you're if you're not careful, your love for them and your desire to walk with them and see them transformed and walking with God, it can very quickly become anger with them. It can very quickly become frustration, which is what we see with Nehemiah. And I think one of the most important leadership, in fact, I think probably the most important leadership lesson that I have learned in Ezra and Nehemiah is this. I cannot change a heart. And neither can you. And if you think you can, what happens is you get frustrated. You get angry with the person who has the heart that you want to change. You get angry with yourself and wonder, why can't I 
cause this person to change? Why can't I bring about transformation? You cannot change a heart. And if you think you can change a heart, then as a shepherd, you will get angry with the sheep under your care because you, you can't force them to change. I can think of, of, of times of just walking with people and thinking, I know what you need to do, you know what you need to do, but you won't do it. And at that point, you've got to take a step back and say, this is not my problem. <laughs> I can't change your heart. I can't do it. I can walk with you and I can support you. And I, like Ezra, I can speak the truth into you. Like Nehemiah, I can build the walls and create a safe place for you. Like Zerubbabel, I can, I can make a house of worship where you can come and praise God. But I can't change your heart. And Ezra and Nehemiah ends with this horrendous anticlimax. The story of Ezra or of Zerubbabel ended with anticlimax whenever the people were disappointed and the glory didn't return. And the story of Ezra ended with anticlimax when he brought the word and tried to rebuild the people's identity with the word, but they ended up running off and again intermarrying and getting all sorts of trouble. And the story of Nehemiah has now ended with wonderful walls, but inside the walls there are people with rotten hearts. In Nehemiah chapter 5, they're charging each other interest. God's people are lending to each other and charging interest. You know, their hearts are rotten. And, and you're left scratching your head. If you, if you make it to the end of the book, first six chapters are great, and then you've got all those names and you tend to fade out. But if you make it to the end of the book and you read chapter 13 thoughtfully, you end up scratching your head thinking, what on earth is going on? <laughs> this was meant to be the model for leadership, the model for building church and engaging in projects. But do you know Zerubbabel's problem? Zerubbabel's problem is he cannot change the human heart. And Ezra's problem is that he cannot change the human heart. And Nehemiah's problem is that he cannot change the human heart. All three of them, fantastic leaders, fantastic. All three of them, so much stuff that you can learn from them. But all three of them have this problem, which is that they cannot change the heart. We need another rebuilder. We need another rebuilder. Because Zerubbabel couldn't do it. And Ezra couldn't do it. And Nehemiah couldn't do it. You see, the return from exile that we read about in these books was a failure. It didn't happen. Despite the efforts of these three wonderful leaders, it didn't happen. The bodies of the Israelite people, physically, their bodies returned from exile to the land. But their hearts were still in exile. And the exile did not end with Ezra and Nehemiah. The new temple did not solve the problem. The new walls did not solve the problem. A new written commitment to the word of God did not solve the problem. They need a new heart. We need another builder. Ezekiel prophesied to the exiles in what is a verse that I love from Ezekiel 36. And this will be our springboard towards next week. I will give you a new heart. Zerubbabel won't do it. Ezra won't do it. And Nehemiah won't do it. I will do it. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. That was the promise made to the exiles while they were in Babylon. It did not happen when they went back to Jerusalem. They got a new temple. And they got new walls. And they got a new commitment to the scriptures, but they didn't get a new heart 
we need another builder. The Hebrew scriptures end with 2 Chronicles 36. This again, this will help you understand, and this, this is it. This is me finished, okay? <laughs> Not going on for six hours. Our arrangement of books in our Old Testament is not the same as the Hebrew arrangement of books in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're not in the same order. Whereas our Old Testament ends with the minor prophets and Malachi at the very, very end, theirs doesn't. Chronologically, these events of Ezra and Nehemiah are some of the latest events of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, it ends with 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Chronicles come at the very end and they basically summarize everything <laughs> with a particular focus on the, on the kings and on the prophets and on the exile. So when you, if you read the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, you finish off with 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles was written quite some time after Ezra and Nehemiah. So the guy who wrote 2 Chronicles knew that Ezra and Nehemiah existed and probably had read it a lot of times. Now we're going somewhere. Here's how 2 Chronicles 36 ends. Here's how the Hebrew Bible ends. This is the last thing that they have written. After Psalms and prophets and all the other stuff, Moses, this is the last thing they have written. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that's how Ezra starts. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. And that's it. Now think about it. Many years before Chronicles was written, Ezra Nehemiah was written as an as a explanation of the, the edict of King Cyrus and the return of the exiles. For some reason, when this dude wrote Chronicles, he, he ended his book with this command to go up to Jerusalem and rebuild. And that's his way of saying, I know what happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. It was a failure. There is still one who will come, who will go up to Jerusalem and rebuild. It hasn't happened yet. The exile has not ended yet. And the, the Bible, that's, that's what the Hebrew Bible ends with, the anticipation of one who will go up to Jerusalem and rebuild. We need another rebuilder. We need one who will go up to Jerusalem and end the exile. We need one who will go up to Jerusalem and lead people out of captivity. We need one who will go up to Jerusalem and establish a new temple built with living stones a new focus for the presence of God so that the glory can return. We need one to go up to Jerusalem and do something that allows human beings to get a new heart. Do you know his name? Jesus. We've looked at three rebuilders and there's one great rebuilder to finish with. We'll look at him next week. We'll worship him now. King Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that although we see much 
in these passages today that speak of failure and frustration and disappointment and anticlimax. Thank you that it all points to the need for a new heart. Thank you that our efforts cannot change the hearts of human beings. Only you can do that by the power of the cross and the resurrection and by the power of your spirit. You are the only one who can give a new heart. Lord, help us to understand that those who have been frustrated in trying to disciple, in trying to lead others, trying to encourage them, I just pray that the, that the burden of that will fall off this morning and that they will absolve themselves of the responsibility of giving people a new heart because it's your job, Lord. And we look forward to, to, to getting our eyes fixed on the ultimate rebuilder, King of Kings, King Jesus, the one who rebuilds and restores human hearts and lives. The one who ends the exile. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you now. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.